Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Father, we are but weak and frail creatures, entirely dependent upon your grace to, to breathe and to live, and especially, Lord, to know you. Lord, I pray that you send the Holy Spirit to be with us in this, on this Sunday morning, that we would, um, you would provide us with clarity and, and, um, and wisdom as we open your word. Reveal yourself to us as we um, might come in here with our own struggles or pains or uncertainties. Jesus, be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. As I said, we're going to be in the book of Luke, uh, so you can turn to chapter 17. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10 this morning. Um, have any of you seen the movie, it's an old one, Rudy? It's a film from 1993. It's uh, three years younger than I am. Uh, Rudy was a popular film in the 90s, and it portrays uh, the plot is of a young man named Rudy Rudiger, who has these dreams of playing for the Notre Dame fighting Irish football team. And the story follows Rudy as he makes his way onto the team. He can't even get into school, so he gets into the school. He makes his way onto the practice team, then onto the the full dress roster. And then by the end of the the movie, by the end of the story, Rudy gets on the field for the last play of the last game of his senior season in college. And he ends up sacking the quarterback, the Georgia Tech quarterback. He's carried off the field on the shoulders of his teammates, and they chant, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. The story's beloved by sports fans everywhere uh, because Rudy wasn't big enough, he wasn't fast enough, he wasn't strong enough, he wasn't good enough to play at that level. And yet through hard work, determination, hustle, he was able to find his way onto the football field. And through the, the kindness and the love and the compassion of his teammates who would chant Rudy to get him in the game, he made his way onto the field. And for those reasons, it's a wonderful film. Uh, That kind of work, that kind of hustle speaks to us as we strive for goals, as we try and provide for our families, as we look to achieve something. And this ideal, this standard of, of trying to work to achieve something, it's emblematic how many of us view the world in general. Work harder, work as hard as you can, hustle, be diligent, and be faithful, and many times the outcome will take care of itself. And even sometimes, I think this is how we view, and a lot of people view, their relationship with God and how they understand who he is. We are taught to work hard, put the maximum amount of effort into our work, into our studies, into whatever we're doing, and the outcomes may take care of themselves. This simply is not how a fallen world works. The reality is, for Rudy Rudiger, if Notre Dame hadn't been up by two and a half touchdowns at the end of the game, he probably wouldn't have found himself on the field. The text this morning is about doing an incredibly hard work and expecting nothing in return. Jesus warns his disciples about expecting unique honor and praise for doing difficult, taxing, challenging, tedious work. He wants to prepare his disciples for a life of service, of giving themselves, of giving of themselves. A life of service where praise and honor are scarce commodities. But even more, he warns their prideful hearts that not only will they likely not have a Rudy moment being carried off the field to chance to his name, but they shouldn't even be longing for that. So our thesis this morning for the text, the main idea that we're going to carry through is this. The Christian's faith-filled duty equips them to live out the complete love of Jesus. The Christian's faith-filled duty equips them to live out the complete love of Jesus. The hard work Jesus is going to point his people to is a radical forgiving of others and the unique danger of causing others to sin, of not being a hindrance to the obedience of other believers. We're going to see that in three points this morning. We're going to see the complete love of Jesus the faith-filled disciples, and the duty of a servant. So we're going to begin with our first point this morning, the complete love of Jesus. He's calling his disciples to posture themselves differently towards one another spiritually. Let's read 17 verses 1 through 4. Jesus says, And he said to his disciples, 
Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. See, this whole section here is a conclusion to Jesus' teaching, that, to a teaching that Jesus is doing on the Sabbath. It began all the way back in Luke 14, verse 1. Jesus has been speaking to Pharisees, to his disciples, to sinners, to tax collectors, to crowds. He's been speaking and teaching to all of these different people. And this text, this, these 10 verses, are the exclamation point, the period, at the end of this teaching of Jesus. So he turns to his disciples, he addresses them specifically. And there are two attitudes that Jesus is pointing his disciples towards here. Both of them have to do with their heart's posture towards their brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, the spiritual treatment of other Christians, other disciples. See, previously Jesus has talked a bit about what it means to like how we physically interact, how we physically care for, love, and treat those around us. And here Jesus gets a little bit deeper with the disciples. Not a little bit, a lot deeper with the disciples. And he talks about their heart's posture, their spiritual relationship. It's broken up into two parts. And this first part we see, woe to the offenders. Read one and two again. He said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Jesus tells them that temptations are sure to come. He guarantees the inevitability that temptations to sin are going to arrive at their doorstep. This comes in several forms for them and for us. This can be simply just the broken, fallen world we live in. Sickness, death, hard things that are hard because the world has fallen can tempt us to sin. This broken world provokes us. Another source of temptation can be our own flesh like our own wrestling with our own sin in our hearts. The spirit of God within us is at war with the flesh that we were once enslaved to. If you read the book of James, he talks about how this is, temptation is born from our own desires, desires for potentially even good things like comfort and peace and satisfaction and joy, and yet finding them in ways that God has not designed us to find them. We can be the source of our own temptations. Finally, what Jesus is going to speak to today is the third source of temptation. That there's temptation and provocation in our relationships with others. A harsh word from a parent, dangerously getting cut off in traffic, or a motorcycle cop having a bad day. There are provocations to sin from others. So Jesus says to them, woe to the one through who they come. I've always wanted to say that to a cop. Probably not a good idea. Here's the problem. Here's the, I was just thinking about this. It's, I'm the one that provoked him, I think, though, right? I'm the provocateur as I break the law and invite him to pull me over. Let's get back to this, sorry. <laughs> the reason we lay out the, that, the, all the, those sources of temptation is that ultimately, even when provoked, either from the brokenness of the world or from somebody else, the burden of sin is still on our shoulders, and we cannot... We cannot blame others for our own sin. We are not absolved because the temptation comes from outside of us. Sin is sin regardless of where the provocation originated. And yet, here Jesus warns his disciples against being negligent in their interactions with other believers, specifically those little ones, as he says. And we, as we read it, that phrase little ones, it's often understood to be children. And that would, that would make sense. It's little ones. And the warning then would under, be understood to say, woe to you if you cause a child to sin, for it'd be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and tossed in the sea. But only not once in this entire Sabbath has Jesus spoken to children. In this entire teaching, he hasn't spoken to children. The closest thing is the prodigal son, who was old enough to get his inheritance and go spend it frivolously. Instead, what Jesus is talking about when he says little ones are the immature, young, broken disciples of Jesus. Look at 15 verses 1 and 2. 
Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. See, the message of grace, mercy, and repentance that Jesus has been giving has penetrated the broken and the weak. The little ones are the immature, weak, new followers of Jesus. What's interesting here is Jesus doesn't actually tell his disciples what the woe is. If we go back in Luke and look at all the other times he says woe, he gives a, a, a result of the woe. Woe to you who are full, for you shall be hungry. Woe to Chorazin and Bethsaida. He gives them what will happen with the woe. Instead of telling them what the woe is, he gives them an alternative, an alternative that's better for them and those around them rather than provoking others to sin. Tie a big rock around your neck and jump into the sea. I, so I knew what a millstone was before, like when I read this, but the millstone that Jesus is talking about, these were generally like four to five feet in diameter. So if it's a circle, it's like four to five feet tall. It crushes grain. It weighs thousands of pounds. It's a foot thick. What a horrific way to die. Jesus said that would be better for you to die a horrific death than to be a hindrance to the young, immature believers around you. There's a really good example of this in the Old Testament. Jeroboam was an evil king. He ruled Israel. He was an idolatrous, selfish, arrogant king. And Israel paid the price for his sin. Look at 1 Kings 14, verses 14 through 16. It says this, Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of the good, this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their ashram, provoking the Lord to anger. That's an idol. They made an idol. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. If you read the rest of Kings, the sins of Jeroboam is a really important theme. Jeroboam did exactly what Jesus was talking about. He caused others to sin by creating idols, being idolatrous himself, and inviting Israel into that idolatry with him. The strong warning exists because the consequences of sin can be devastating. And in the case of Jeroboam, an entire nation is going to be crushed because of his negligence and his willful foolishness. You know how easy this is to do? I've been married for 13 years, coming up on 13 in, in, in August, and uh, we haven't crushed it, you know? There have been some, some good years. There's been a lot of hard years uh, where, you know, we were less faithful than we ought. But even in the good years, I can't say I've avoided being a hindrance to my wife and nor she to me. All it takes sometimes to start a cycle of, of sin and argument is one harsh word, one sarcastic comment, one, one moment to begin that cycle. And that's not to take the blame from Jessalyn for responding to me the, the same way. And yet it began with my own foolishness, with my own sin. And what ensues is some petty argument about where the garbage can should be, where we should park our car, or what we're going to do on a Saturday afternoon. See, the initial mean-spirited remark in itself is sin. But the effect of that sin is a hanging curveball of temptation for Jessalyn to crush right back at me. Another re really easy way to be a hindrance, to be a stumbling block, is in parenting. Same principle as in marriage. In fact, there's a reason that in Ephesians Six, Paul literally tells parents not to provoke their children to anger. But even beyond that, beyond explicit provocation, without a single word, parents can provoke their kids to sin. They can lead their children to destruction by the, by the way that we live. We're modeling a way of life that they're most likely going to try and emulate. So what we prove is important to us by how we spend our money or our time what our priorities are, all of these things are observed by our children and likely emulated. We should be far more careful 
and thoughtful about our parenting in that regard. Another application of this, stepping outside of the home, and the most prevalent way I think this shows up in our circles is the flaunting of our liberty, specifically our Christian liberty. The issues that we have varying convictions on about what is right and wrong and what is sinful and obedience to the Lord. Turn to Romans 14. Romans 14, verse 6, says this. So this is Paul speaking to some Christians who think it is specifically holy to hold to the Sabbath, and that they are still bound by the Old Testament Mosaic law of what is to, what eating unclean and clean foods. And so for them, it is sin to eat unclean foods. And so verse 6, So the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. See, this follows the discourse where Paul is discussing the consumption of these unclean meats, of keeping the Sabbath. And for some faithful God-honoring Christians, eating the meat, the unclean meats, it violates their conscience, and so for them it is sin. For other faithful God-honoring Christians, eating the meat is permissible and done in worship as the old law has been fulfilled. And a point made by Paul here in Romans 14, verse 15, where he says this, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy, for the, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Paul is placing a burden on the one with the freer liberty, the brother who does eat the meat. It is incumbent upon the one with the more forgiving conscience to consider the conscience of the other brother. In other words, don't provoke that person to sin. He's, it's not going to be on your screen, but he says this in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I think we are way too selfish sometimes, thinking highly of our convictions and opinions on matters like alcohol, entertainment, social media, how to school our kids. And then we pass judgment on our brothers and sisters who think differently, who have different godly convictions, biblical convictions, and sometimes tempting them to argument, and sometimes even tempting them to violate their own conscience. Perhaps more humility is appropriate when considering these matters, particularly for those whose conscience is broad and gives more allowance. We should rather consider the appropriate size cement shoes and go jump in the ocean than provoke our brother to sin. So from offending others to being offended, Jesus switches the focus to the spiritual reaction of his disciples to being sinned against. We're on the other side of that equation now. It's our second point, our second subpoint this morning. Forgive, forgive, forgive. Read verses three and four with me. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Guard themselves. As he said in verse one, temptations are sure to come. So Jesus sets up a scenario where one brother sins against another brother. And he's speaking to the brother that he sinned against. And there are actually two commands here. Two commands. The first gets overlooked, I think, often. See, when the brother sins, the brother or sister in Christ sins against them, the first thing they should do is what? Rebuke. Rebuke them. It's a command. So think of rebuking as the opposite of holding a grudge. It's easy to hold a grudge. Someone offends us, or our spouse, or someone close to us, a friend, and, and we we classify that person. We think about that person differently. It's a barrier in relationship to love and care or even just considering the person in any capacity. We disdain their presence. We won't even entertain the thought of reconciliation. That's grudge holding. A rebuke is the opposite. Rather than holding it against them privately, you go to them. Share the concern simply and even gently. Rebuking isn't an arrogant, self-important approach. One theologian puts it, it's frank but gentle. This practice should be common amongst Christians. Why? Because we sin. Because we sin against one another regularly. 
because we are constantly provoking each other to sin in a variety of ways. And it's actually the more loving approach, more loving to approach and to be approached when we're living contrary to the way that the Lord has commanded us to. And there's discernment here. There's a lot of discernment. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.14. says this, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, it's rebuke, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak, and be patient with them all. Not everyone all the time needs rebuke. It's not as if every time we see sin in our brother, the most appropriate response is to go to them and lay down the law and show them in the Bible where they sinned and how they sinned and how they can change and how they should repent. Sometimes people are weak. People are struggling. Sometimes people are faint-hearted and down. And what they need is not rebuke, but encouragement or help or for us to enter into that struggle and that pain and that suffering. And just be. Sometimes the most helpful course of action isn't to rebuke, but to help. So Jesus says, if they repent, forgive them. If they acknowledge their sin, they turn away from it towards the Lord, forgive them. The word simply means forgive, to forsake, to hurl it away, to leave it alone, to disregard. Leave it out of your thought when you consider who that person is when you consider the identity of that person, it doesn't factor into whether or not you will love them or care for them or be a part of their life. It doesn't factor into the equation of how you value or love this person at all. So Jesus says, forgive them. And not once, but how many times? Seven times. Now this number seven is significant. It's significant for two reasons. The first is that seven represents fullness and completeness. And this comes from the way the word seven is spelt in Hebrew. It's the same consonants, the same letters as the word full. Both of the exact same letters. As well, God created the cosmos in seven days, and it was full. It was complete. It was good. So seven could rightly be understood as Jesus says it, not simply to be seven, but to be full and complete forgiveness. Potentially an indefinite number of forgiveness. And actually, later in Luke, Peter's going to call back to this moment as if he's like trying to get extra credit or something. And he's like, hey, I should forgive my brother seven times, right? And then Jesus is like, no, 77 times seven. I don't know what that is off the top of my I'm not good at math, but it's a lot. But Jesus isn't saying a lot. Jesus is saying all of the time. All of the time there is repentance. All of the time there is forgiveness. See, the second reason this is significant is there was a particular practice by Jews at this time to forgive specifically three times. And this comes from Amos 1 and 2. If you go read it, it's all of these, it's all these nations that have rebelled against God. And he forgives these nations three times. And it's on the fourth time that he dispenses his judgment out upon them. And so the logic for the rabbinic teaching was that you cannot forgive more times than God forgave. So you can only forgive three times. That was the aspirational standard for the religious leaders, for the Pharisees, and even for any Jew at the time, is to forgive three times. All in all, Jesus' standard of forgiveness for his disciples was far more gracious to the sinner than the standard practice of the first century religious people, teachers, or even the standards that they all held themselves to. And this makes sense for us. It does. It makes a lot of sense for us as post-New Testament Christians because we have the backdrop of the cross, of grace, not this rabbinic teaching of three times, but of the infinite grace of God in Jesus. See, sin separates. It not only separates us from one another, because it does. You hurt someone that puts a wedge, even if there's forgiveness that can, that can fester, that could be a, a barrier to your relationships, not because there's not forgiveness, but because there's hurt. And it's hard to let go of hurt. Sin separates us from one another, but it separates individuals from God. And that's a cosmic separation. That is an infinite separation. That is a finite fallen creature rebelling against the infinite, perfect God of the universe. See, even a single microsecond of faithless anger or self-confident pride is enough to rip a chasm between me and the infinite perfect God of the cosmos. 
That's what happened with Adam and Eve. One mistake, one little moment, one decision, one moment of weakness and disconnected from the perfect presence of walking with God in the garden, ending in death. See, Jesus entered flesh that that chasm of separation might be closed. Jesus presents a new standard of forgiveness for his people, and it's not just commanded. In G- it's not just commanded by Jesus, but it's demonstrated in his gospel. See, fundamental to the Christian gospel is debt paid and forgiveness offered. A chasm bridged by the work of Christ. Here, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, is on his way to Jerusalem to be killed for the sin of his people. He's going to die a sinner's death for those that would call upon him as Lord and King. He will pay the debt that every Christian will ever owe as he dies on the cross. And as he suffers and dies, he will utter the words to his oppressors, to the ones nailing his hands and feet to that board. He will utter about the ones that place the crown of thorns on his head and mock him and spit him and make fun of him. He will utter, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Compare these two ideas of forgiveness. On one hand, the traditional ideal that the disciples would likely hold themselves to, this this rule of three. And then not only what Jesus is saying, but what we know, post-cross, what the forgiveness of the gospel looks like. A radical forgiveness whose well cannot be emptied. An endless deposit of merciful grace in the gospel for even the most unworthy. I would wager that every single person in this room has someone or multiple someones that we struggle to forgive. Someone who harmed us deeply. Maybe they harmed our spouse and there's some righteous anger. Maybe they cost us something important or they harmed a close friend. Perhaps they didn't hurt us at all, but someone close to us. See, what irony. What irony. What irony. Where is my irony in my manuscript? (laughs) What irony. (laughs) When we lack forgiveness when the one who lacks forgiveness comes from a soul who claims to have felt and experienced forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus. We sing songs about the greatness of God, the mercy of Jesus, that he would forgive a wretch like me, that he would shine into our night because we are not what we should be, and yet we offer no light to those who have wronged us because we're somehow special. If you're holding on to bitterness and resentment, rage, anger, towards a brother or a sister in Christ who is repentant and turned from their sin to the Lord, to faithful obedience, and you cannot forgive that person, do you really understand the magnitude of grace that God has dispensed upon his people? Do you have higher standards than God? Oh, how we cheapen the gospel when our modeling of his grace is so weak and so fickle. Now, if this sounds extreme and hard and difficult, it's because it is. It's not a posture that comes natural to the human or to the disciple of Christ. It takes an incredible amount of effort and diligence and selfless obedience. The disciples recognize this, which leads to our second point this morning, the faith-filled disciple. See, the disciples recognize how hard it is what Jesus is asking of them, these commands and warnings, especially when their aspiration for forgiveness was three times, and they probably didn't even reach that. And Jesus is giving them this the standard, this magnitude's more gracious. Read with me 17 verse five, the response to Jesus' words. 
The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. See, there's something fascinating happening here. What Jesus discussed so far has primarily been interpersonal relationships between God's people, between you and me and each other, how we interact with one another on a spiritual level. And I think the default attribute that we would uh, assume is most relevant to how we treat others would be love. Not faith, but love. The fruit of the Spirit that we would strive to increase, that we would strive to be faithful in, would be love, loving others. After all, it's unloving to lack forgiveness. It's incredibly loving to, to live in this forgiveness that Jesus is describing. But the apostles don't ask for an increase of love. They ask for an increase of faith. And this ties the relational components of our walk with Jesus, that is how we relate to each other. It ties the relational components of our walk with Jesus, not to love first, but to faith. In other words, the way to be more loving with one another isn't by asking the Lord for more love. It's asking the Lord for more faith. Loving others begins with faith in God, trust in Jesus, and embrace of the gospel. Sometimes we think that we are loving God by loving others, and this is certainly true. Treating image bearers as God has asked us to, treating image bearers as we would treat ourselves. These are commands by the Lord. Following the Lord's commands is faithful loving of God. There is a spiritual aspect, to, uh, but that is not where that is not where it begins when we lack love. We don't ask for love, we ask for faith. And how does Jesus respond to this request? Look at verse 6. And if the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. See, Jesus tells them that what little faith they have, that one millimeter thick mustard seed, is enough. What they already have is enough. See, the disciples were thinking about their faith in terms of quantity, not quality. They thought that they didn't have enough faith. I think we think this way too. Certainly we do. If we're just a little bit stronger in our faith, maybe I'd be a little bit more faithful reading my Bible in the mornings and being more disciplined. If we were a little bit stronger in our faith, we would be better evangelists with our neighbors. If we were a little bit stronger in our faith, maybe we would be able to live out this aspirational idea of forgiveness. But Jesus tells them it isn't about the amount of faith that they have because even the smallest amount of faith is enough to do magnitudes more than the tasks he's given them to do here. See, a mulberry tree was 20 feet tall. It had this extensive root system. It couldn't be planted within 37 feet of a cistern because of the root system. It was a common saying that this tree would last 600 years. And yet even... The one millimeter thick mustard seed is enough to uproot this monstrosity and plant it elsewhere. See, elsewhere, Jesus says the face of a mustard seed can move mountains. Maybe a little bit more relatable for us in Missoula. See, Jesus is using hyperbole to make this point, that the power of faith is proportionate to the power of that faith's object. See, the power of faith has little to do with how much there is. Rather, the power of faith is dependent upon the object of that faith. The reason the mulberry tree or a mountain will obey is not because you have power. The reason the mustard seed or the mulberry tree or the mountain will obey is because it will obey its creator. It will obey its master, the one who spoke it into being, the one who crafted the cosmos, the one who planted that tree, the one who carved that mountain. See, the problem for the disciples in their request for faith was not their desire. They were lamenting their weakness. They were lamenting how difficult it would be for their flesh to live out this ideal. The problem wasn't a good faith longing to live up to the standards of Jesus. Their problem was doubting what they already had in Christ This passage isn't about doing great things for the kingdom. It's not a verse to put on a pair of cleats, stamp on the wall of a locker room, or 
put up in a barracks. That emphasis rips Jesus' words entirely out of context. This passage is about the difficulty of ordinary obedience and the necessity and sufficiency of faith in Jesus and his gospel to overcome the challenge of living ordinary, faithful lives in this broken world to the glory of God. When we lack love for one another, our first move should be repentance ourselves. Turning to the Lord and asking forgiveness for our own lack of gospel-driven grace. Our second move should be go to read Luke 17, verses 5 and 6, because what we already have in Jesus is enough to accomplish all of the difficult work Jesus has for his people while we serve him on this earth. While we serve him on this earth, that leads us to our final point this morning, the duty of a servant. So to put a period on this Sabbath teaching, Jesus offers the parable of a servant and his master. Read chapter 17, verses 7 through 10 with me. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly? Serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. See, as we read this, there's undoubtedly a little bit of awkwardness comes to us as we read this. First, we don't like the word servant, mainly because it's a, or bond servant or slave, doesn't sit well. I promise this is the only like Greek word we'll do. The word for servant here is doulos. It is often translated as servant or slave or bond servant in the New Testament. And there, here's the thing: there's another word that is translated as servant, and it's uh, diakonon or diakonos, and that's translated as servant and yet also minister or deacon. And yet the word used here is doulos, not diakonos. Dulos literally means to owned by another for a lifetime, a slave. As we understand the word slave today, dulos means owned by another for a lifetime, a slave. See, the second reason I think this text might rub us the wrong way is when we read it through our modern lens, maybe a professional lens, we think about work and employment. We don't want to work for an ungrateful boss. We don't want to work for an overly demanding boss. See, if we interpret this through a professional lens, we're going to be turned off by Jesus' words and start thinking in some different directions. So we don't like the word slave, and we don't think about the implication. We don't like to think about the implications of Jesus endorsing slavery. And we don't like a demanding boss, and we don't like to think about Jesus endorsing that kind of behavior in the workplace. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. Rather, Jesus is observing the posture of the slave. Because often in scripture, Jesus' disciples and the people of God are referred to as doulos, as slaves, responsible to the Lord, that's slaves to God, slaves to Christ. Look with me at a couple of verses, Acts 4.29. And now the Lord, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants, slaves, to continue to speak your word with all boldness. God empowers his people as slaves to do his work. Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, the great Paul, a servant, doulos, of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Finally, 1 Corinthians 7.22, for he who has called, or he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant, doulos, is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a doulos of God. This makes, this all to make the point that the life of the disciple belongs not to himself, but to Christ. Remember that miraculous forgiveness we talked about in the gospel? That forgiveness saves you from an eternity of suffering, an eternity of joyless existence apart from our creator. That forgiveness offers hope to the hopeless, life to the lifeless, joy to the joyless. And Galatians 3 says that Jesus bought us with his blood. 
We are as much his as we, as he is ours. Therefore, the life of a believer, the life of a Christian is one of service and yes, slavery to God, to his will and his purposes. And the thing is, that's a good life. That's a good life because undoubtedly the creator of the cosmos is going to have better plans, more fruitful plans, more fruitful outcomes than I could even dream of, even in my best attentions. So what's Jesus emphasizing in this parable? There were servants returned from the keeping the fields and the sheep, and rather than, than praise or honor or rest, they're tasked with yet more work more to do, which is serving their master his meal. And then after that, Jesus asks this rhetorical question, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? No, he doesn't. Rather, the servant continues his duty diligently, faithfully, until the end of the day, then all that is required, they say to themselves, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. End sermon on Sabbath, end discourse on Sabbath. The point of this parable is pretty simple. It was a warning against spiritual pride, a warning against the kind of self-righteousness, self-assurance, and self-seeking pride that we so loathe when we read the Pharisees and how they interact with the people and with Jesus. Jesus gave at the beginning of this sermon so much more a loving standard than even what the highest religious standards were of the day. That's an incredibly difficult task for all of these disciples of Jesus, standards that they couldn't, beyond what they couldn't even hold themselves to. So if they did, if they hear Jesus' words and they begin to live out this radical forgiveness, it would begin to make sense like, I got this. A little bit of pride, a little bit of self-assurance, a little bit of self-reliance. Jesus says no. He's pointing them away from pride and their ability to obey and follow and follow through on the commands of Jesus. He's pointing them towards a duty-driven service, not concerned with praise and honor, but concerned with faithful obedience. Faithful obedience to the commands of Scripture. See, obedience doesn't earn a place before the Lord nor does it oblige him to thank us. No, our service is a thanks in and of itself for that magnitude of grace that he has poured out upon us, for that infinite chasm that Jesus bridges. See, Jesus is calling all of his disciples to a life of, of service to the mission of the gospel. Every single believer, everyone who would genuinely claim the name Christian all to obey and to serve. See, the work of ministry is to be done by every single Christian who would claim Christ as their own. Evangelism, discipleship, and here, the spiritual forgiveness, the consistent grace that Jesus himself displays. displays. All of this work is challenging. It's taxing. It's hard. It's difficult. It's overwhelmingly difficult in the best of circumstances. Look at what Jesus said, how he describes these servants once more in verse seven. It's not gonna be up there, but. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, keeping sheep, shepherding? Shepherding is synonymous with two things in the New Testament. First, Jesus as the chief shepherd. Think back to him leaving the 99 to go find the one, cares for all of his sheep. And second, shepherding is synonymous with pastoring or eldering a church, caring for the flock of God. But it's not just shepherding, he says. What else does he say? The hard, taxing, toiling, brutal work of tilling land and planting seeds and harvesting those seeds. Whatever flavor of ministry that you are called to, whatever capacity inside or outside of the church, we are all merely doulos of the Lord. None of us worthy of honor. Unless we consider ourselves rock stars for having found us faithful to obey, Jesus says, check your pride at the door because 
in whatever way you have been faithful is nothing less than what you have ought to dutifully have done in the first place. Why? Because we are unworthy servants. When we think about unworthy, I imagine most of us, I know for me certainly, go to our sin. Think about how evil and broken we are or how evil and messed up and broken our minds and our emotions and everything about us was before Christ. And sometimes we think about the, the vice and the sin that grips our heart now, even having known the grace of God. We think about how unworthy and wretched and broken we are. But Jesus flips that here. Unworthiness is tied to the faithful duty of the servant. What does he say? For we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Because even the best we have to offer God is nothing less than we ought to have given in the first place. Again, what we have already been given in Jesus and his gospel is more than enough in return. We could never offer a service to God that would begin to repay the debt that Jesus pays on behalf of the Christian. And this isn't to get us down into despair, to a feeling of worthlessness or uselessness, and like life is some pointless movement from nothing to nothing. Because again, for the Christian, we already have Christ. A mustard seed of faith is enough. If you're here and you sat through this sermon and you've heard several phrases like for the Christian, for the believer, God's pe- for God's people, you may be wondering, well, what about me? If you receive these words of Jesus in this text and they maybe start to make a little bit of sense, you're wondering, what, what does this offer you? So the answer is nothing less than the perfect fulfillment of that ideal of forgiveness that Jesus commands. If you're not a believer and you feel the weight of a life lived serving yourself or even serving others, but totally neglecting, ignoring, and pretending that God doesn't exist, and you're beginning to glimpse just a little bit of something, that maybe there's something bigger out there. Maybe this is starting to make a little bit of sense. The point of this text for you is that millimeter mustard seed. A mustard seed is enough to experience the grace and the mercy and the joy of Jesus and the gospel. Trust in the radical, perfect forgiveness of Jesus, of his gospel, love for him above all, because he is worthy. And while we Christians may not practice what we preach, I am the, the forgiveness piece. I, I feel like I'm going to go on it and forgive my tangent. I feel like I'm a very forgiving and kind and generous person in many, many ways. But it is, it is embarrassing how hard it is for me to forgive my wife sometimes. I am, I am a wretch at this ideal Jesus holds before us. But for every way that Christians don't live up to the standards that we preach, that we read about in God's word, for every way that we fail, Jesus practiced perfectly what he preached. He offered life to the thief that died next to him on a cross after living a life only in service to himself. And he offers that to you too. I want to close this morning with an excerpt from the book, The Hiding Place. The book is written by Corey Ten Boom with some help, and it's about her life as a, as a Dutch watchmaker in World War II. She and her family helped Jews hide from Nazis in a hiding place under their home. And she tells the stories of their illegal underground activities to protect people in this hiding place. And eventually, Corey and her family are arrested and sent to prison and to a concentration camp. It's a beautiful story about reconciling their, their illegal activity with their identity as Christians to protect the innocent and persecuted people. In the book, Corey tells of her Tante Jans, or aunt, her aunt Jans. And she's a widow. She spent most of her widowed years serving and serving and serving God. Everything she could do to serve the Lord, serving the poor, evangelizing the lost, teaching a standard of modesty and propriety and holiness to Christians in society. She's described in the book as having been working to earn her place before God. 
She's diagnosed with diabetes and then even more fervently seeks to honor God. A blood test will come back to Corey and her father on Fridays because that's when the blood test would come back. And with no treatment at the time, they have to break the news to her. This is from chapter three of The Hiding Place. It'll be on the screen. <clears throat> and so the little procession filled up the steps to Tante Jan's rooms. Come in, she called to father's knock and added as she always did and closed the door before I catch my death of drafts. She was sitting at a round mahogany table working on yet another appeal for her soldier's center. As she saw the number of people entering the room, she laid down her pen. She looked from one face to another until she came to mine and gave a little gasp of comprehension. This was Friday morning, and I had not yet come up with the result of the test. My dear sister-in-law, father began gently. There is a joyous journey which each of God's children sooner or later sets out on. And Yans, some must go to their father empty-handed, but to you, but you will run to him with hands full. All your clubs, Tante Anna ventured. All your writings, Mama added. The funds you've raised, said Betsy. Your talks, I began. But our well-meant words were useless. In front of us, the proud face crumpled. Tante Yans put her hand, hands over her eyes and began to cry, empty, empty. She choked the last through tears. How can we bring anything to God? What does he care for our little tricks and trinkets? And then we listened in disbelief. She lowered her hands and said, with tears coursing down her face, whispered, Dear Jesus, I thank you that we must come with empty hands. I thank you that you have done all, all on the cross. And that all we need in life or death is to be sure of this. It's not about what we offer Christ. It's about what he's given us. All that we need in life or death is to be sure of this. Let us live in the ordinary obedience of forgiveness, of avoiding being a stumbling block, that we may arrive at heaven's gate and we may hear those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful, doulos. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we bathe in your grace. Lord, shower us with overwhelming affection for how little we are and for how big you are, how much you've done. Lord, as we consider these words of Jesus, help us to be faithful where we are weak. Help us to live in the ordinary obedience of following you every single day. Lord, I pray that we would not think highly of that which you've given us to do, but think soberly about the ordinary life you've called us to live. Jesus, help us where we think only of ourselves and neglect others. God, we need you in this effort. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.